I had an M2, but I've never had a black paint M4. And so it was sort of cool. I, and I still haven't had an M3, but I, and I doubt if I ever will. I mean, they're just out of sight. They're up into the into the five digits right now. I've never so much as handled an M4. Besides the slanted rewind knob, like what are the p- biggest differences between that and M3? The frame lines. It's got more frame lines. So it's like a combination of the M2 and M3, sort of? Yeah, a little bit different design of the body, and they handle the same. I mean, all M basically handle the same. The the smartest one for anybody really is the M2, because you've got the frame lines that most people use, you know, 35. and But the M4 too is probably the best value. It's, it's weird to hear Leica and value in the same sentence. Theo, watch out for those Python worms. <laughs> yes, worms in the brain down here. So how's it going, Theo? How's is work uh, making you crazy or are you? Well, it is, it is. Unlike the, the Northern Hemisphere, it's the middle of winter here. So we're all working very hard. And the warm weather during the middle of our winter, because we've actually had an unseasonally warm winter, has actually made people a bit crazy, and I'm I'm actually suffering the effects of that from my work environment. We've had some unseasonably hot weather here too. Yeah, I've, I've seen you guys have had a, a real summer for a change. Yeah, well, for three days, and then Anthony's got a hurricane coming. You can't you can't hear see it, but Anthony's shaking his head. Are you guys taking any pictures? I mean, have you actually? picked up a camera and gone out and shot in anger me yeah i was out from four until six getting pictures of these insane cloud formations as they rolled in i went up on the the parking structure what were you shooting with i shot the Percaro with the 127 i was shooting the robot royal and i was shooting the mercury too i wish i'd taken the 617 up because the vista from on top of the parking garage of the the clouds to the west was like these insane cumulus clouds with this, this striation from like, you know, them being blown in from the outer bands of the hurricane. It was quite dramatic. So this one's unusual in that it's going to hit the west side first and then cross over? Well, it's unusual in that the Gulf of Mexico has never been this hot. So right now, the temperature of the water at like 10 miles out is like 93 degrees, which is insane. And the other the other thing that they're really worried about is that typically the hot water, you know, kind of floats. And it only goes down, let's say, 25, 50 feet. And right now, it's like 90 degrees straight through to 150 feet. So that as the hurricane passes over, normally it would, because of the low pressure, it would draw the cold water up, which would sort of put the brakes on the hurricane, so to speak. Now it's just going to fuel it even more. So there's a, there's a chance it could hit as a Category 4. Wow. You never want to see that guy, Jim, from the Weather Channel flying into your airport at 5 o'clock. Everybody saw him fly into the Gainesville Airport at 5 o'clock. And he's heading over to Cedar Key, which is where I go to get my clams and where I I take a lot of photos. And uh, it's about 45 minutes to the west of us, almost due west. But now they actually think that the center of the storm, well, I mean, it's still too far out to know. I mean, we won't know until tomorrow night at like 4 o'clock where it's actually going to hit. Which is crazy because it's still out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, it's like parallel with like South Florida, just north of the Keys right now. Uh, but it's going to go, it's going to accelerate a whole lot, and it's going to get a lot stronger. It's going to intensify quite a bit. And the latest projection has it going about 50 miles north of Gainesville. So it's actually going to loop in like more towards the Big Bend and go just above us. So we'll actually be on like the south side of it, and it's going to cut across at an angle. And then pop out over by like Savannah, Georgia. Well, hopefully you stay safe. So that guy that flies in, he's like a weatherman that chases the the really big big weather events or something. Jim Cantori, he's uh, 
he's the he's the the, the gold standard for uh, predicting how bad something's going to be. The other one, what we have here, uh, uh, Theo, is called the Waffle House Alert or Index. Waffle House Index. We have a chain of restaurants in the south southeast called Waffle Houses. And when they close the Waffle Houses, you know it's time to to evacuate. Oh wow! Okay, <laughs> and that's that's a serious thing. I actually read doesn't FEMA actually pay attention to where? Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's completely like pop culture, but like scarily accurate. Well, they used to stay with Denny's, you know, Denny's restaurants because the Denny's front doors had they actually didn't have locks on the doors because they never locked them, they never closed. So they had to, when, when it got bad, they finally had to start putting locks on the doors because, well, they, they, and then they had some that were, did have locks, but no one knew where the keys were because they had never used them. Well, for us, I actually have to drive past the Waffle House on the way to work. And we normally will keep the cafe open because we are in a city structure downtown that is actually the structure that houses one of the emergency response teams. And it's also the communication center for the net for the police. And so we always have internet, we always have power, and it's a, it's a safe, modern structure. But this is the first time that we've had to close because the uh, path is the path like straight through Gainesville. And this morning, I started having parents of my staff freaking out. And they were like, come to Miami, come down to Fort Lauderdale, you know, get the hell out of Gainesville. And so we're, we're, we're going to have to close tomorrow at midday. And we'll be closed through Wednesday and reopen on Thursday only because my staff's evacuating town, which I mean, I can't blame them, but uh, it's just never happened before in 15 years of running the cafe. Well, you know, I understand because if when they're at work, they're safe, but when they're going, when they're going, when they're home, they're probably possibly not. And then getting to and from work is an issue. We, we have that here with the, with the uh, blizzards. I mean, when, it, when we have 16 to 20 inches of snow, uh, you know, it's hard to get to and from work. Once you get to work, you're fine. Right. And we're normally the place that everybody evacuates to because we're in the dead center of the state. We're pretty far north. We never really get direct hits. So for us, like staying open was like giving people a place where they could go to get Wi-Fi, giving people a place where they could go to charge their phones and maybe get something to eat. But when, <laughs> you know, when it's your own people evacuating, uh, you just kind of have to, to roll with it. Does the cafe have a basement? No. No. I know that's not common by you, but I didn't know if maybe you did. If we had a basement, that'd be known as the indoor swimming pool. I gotcha. The water table's like six feet below the surface. I gotcha. I was going to say, you guys need to come to Sydney. We don't have any of that. We, <laughs> all we get is smoke from the, the rest of Australia burning. But we have, you know, we have a winter that's like 22 degrees and sunny and then... And then summer gets super hot, but Indiana and Ohio are pretty sterile. I mean, technically we can get tornadoes, but they're pretty rare. You know, winter by me is really mild. I mean, last year I didn't even have to pull out my snowblower even once. Yeah, but wait, wait, wait until that, that earthquake fault cracks. What's, what's this snow stuff? <laughs> hey, it's winter by you right now, isn't it? It is, but we've got 22 degree temperatures in Celsius. That's Celsius. Well, tw- I was going to say 22 is below freezing. So you- yeah, so what's I don't know what that is. I think that's like sixty something. Yeah, it's in the sixties. Sixties, okay, sixties. So it's which that's the middle of winter. Um, we're all running around in t-shirts. So oh wow. So you're basically well, that's like Florida then. Florida, their winters in like the sixties, isn't it? Fifties yeah, and sixties. It yeah. is. Yeah. Although, like t- t- today, it was it was ninety seven. So are you saying that Sydney is a bit like Florida, except that we have a 
better government or something like that? <laughs> yes, I don't think anyone could argue with that. No. Well, and you're also missing Florida Man. Florida Man is this strange superhero that always does really crazy things or dies in spectacularly bad ways. And 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 you don't you don't have enough guns. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we got no guns, so. I saw this article. It was like a survey of people from not America, right? That said, what, like, name 10 things you think the average American household has that, like, other countries don't. And I expected guns to be on there. And strangely, it wasn't. But some of the things that were on there were like a refrigerator in the garage. And I'm like, well, yeah, I have that. You know, I didn't think I've got that. I got that. Yeah, I didn't think that was. Okay. Another one was ranch dressing in the fridge. I'm like, that seems like a weird thing. I didn't realize that was a American. No, Cleo's shaking his head. No, I've got ranch ice cream in the freezer. Ranch ice cream. <laughs> well, that's me. Yeah, I mean, it was just it was a bunch of really weird things. Like, I guess I didn't even know that that was uh, considered an American thing. But I was like, yep, got got a couple of these. Yeah, ranch dressing's not common around here. But I mean, do you have salad dressing of, of any kind? Of course we do. Yeah, of course we do. Either. I mean, they vary in a lot of different, but ranch is a very American uh, type uh, of taste. Um, just bringing it back into photography a bit, Anthony. Yes. If you, with the storm coming, what are you going to try and take any pictures? Please do not go out there and put yourself in danger for, this, for the sake of, of taking pictures. But well, I I always keep a uh, I always keep a Nikonos loaded during one of these storms. That's what I was thinking. That's what I was thinking. The, the Nikonos would be the perfect camera for this kind of thing. Yeah, I'll probably take the 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 four out uh, because it's like a good amphibious camera. You know, put that thirty five millimeter lens on it, and uh, and 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 heck yes, I'm going to go out and take pictures. I mean, yes, of course. <laughs> Are you going to at least cable yourself to something? You, do you have a kayak? Yes, I do. Yep. Okay, well, so that's it. Just stick it on the back of the truck, and there you go. You got your kayak or your canoe and uh, and your Nikonos and you're you're good to go. You know, it's actually to it, it, you joke, but there's I live out in the middle of nowhere. I live on a, a wilderness preserve that's like seventy five thousand acres, and there's only one road that loops out of my house, and so you can go either left or right, same road. And in the last hurricane, it flooded in both directions, and so we were stuck in the house for three days, and you had to use a kayak to get across, and then rely on a neighbor to take you into town. So there's a, there's a chance that 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 after today, I will be stuck at home uh, until the uh, until the flood subsides. Have you got enough film? Yes, chemicals, <laughs> water, cameras. So uh, maybe a good question is: I guess we've started the show, by the way. I, well, okay, all right. So that's I didn't I didn't know Paul was going to hold that up. A good question would be maybe besides an Iconos, what would be a good camera to to photograph a storm? You know, for other people who maybe want to go out in some extreme weather like what what other recommendations are there for weather resistant cameras that that we could recommend oh what's that conica one they use for construction sites yeah the contabuku that's the one i actually have one of those and i have a digital and a film version of it i've got a film version of it now that camera's rugged but is it waterproof it's weatherproof weather is weatherproof so, yeah, they say it can be caught in a downpour for like 15 or 20 minutes. But, yeah, I, uh, Mike and Rudy sent me uh, both the film and the digital, and I had never seen the digital version. Though uh, in, in the, all the uh, the box, the packaging, everything's written in Japanese. So I'm really not sure they ever exported it to the U.S. No, for whatever reason, it's 
I did a review of the Fuji TW. No, not the TW. Um, I don't remember one of those. It was it was Fuji's version of that Konica camera. So I did a little bit of research on those workforce workplace um, cameras, and for whatever reason, they're popular in Japan, but they they didn't seem to catch on outside outside of Japan too much. I mean, there was the Fuji HD one, I think, which might have been sold here, but then they have a whole lineup of these workforce cameras they made workforce like polaroids you know they're real rugged bodies panasonic used to make laptops that were ridiculously thick and i don't know what it is but the the japanese really are really rough on their cameras or something but uh, almost all those ones that i've seen like you noted paul almost always have japanese writing you know on the box and the manual and such like that didn't either minolta or canon make a yellow bodied plastic submersible camera was, was it a 110 or Minolta had the weather Maddox. they had the that was a 110 i think right or did they have a th- well they had they had uh yes 110 and maybe 126 no i think it was just 110 and then icon had the action touch which is probably the nicest of all of them i did a review of the canon as6 which was their first one which was really quite a nice camera. I had taken it on a family vacation. Oh, that's like tan and tan and red, isn't it? No, it's like bright orange. It you could it's got a auxiliary viewfinder with the huge frame, similar to the Nikonos. I didn't use it, but I took it to a water park with the family and I just kind of like had it wrapped around my wrist while I was yeah, Theo's holding up the, the Minolta one. Uh but the Canon AS6 and then there was a second one called the Canon A1. Yeah, the A1 was the gray and that was the gray and red one. What you're thinking about the oh, mine's white and red. I've got I've got the, the auto boy. Yeah, in the US they were they were gray and red. And then I think the export version or the, the versions in Europe and Australia were white and red. But th- those were all those are also nice cameras. The the Aqua Snappy is the AS6. Right, yes, correct. A Aqua Snappy. I reviewed that camera. I shot it in water and on land. It performed really, really well. One thing, and this this applies to any underwater camera, is your focal range, cha- your focus range changes whether you're above or below water. It you know you 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 get different. You can't shoot to infinity underwater, whereas you can above land or in the air and such like that. But uh, I got really nice pictures from it. It was simple, easy to use. I did not like. I know Anthony, you've spoken in other episodes about the O-rings are sometimes difficult and no longer watertight on the Nikonoses. Yeah, specifically the the four had like custom cast O rings that weren't round, but they were like the the odd shape of the of the sort of square plus these different indentations that it had. So the the four is the only one that has problems uh, because you can't get those O rings anymore. But the uh, the older ones, the the two and the three, and then the five use kind of a standard O ring that you could probably get at at uh, you know Mastercard or any of the sort of Typical supply companies. For lack of experience with too many underwater cameras, I, I can give a thumbs up to the Aqua Snappy, the AS6. Although I think a lot of people are, are pretty big fans of the A1 also. And uh, maybe, maybe either they improved it or it's just it, the 1980s isn't old enough to where those O-rings have started to rot out yet. So if you find one today, it should still be pretty valuable, I would think. Yeah, a lot of people, you know, the, the advantage of those cameras was that they were a little more rugged. So it wasn't just water. They were also sealed against dust. So if you were a, a dirt biker or traveled on a motorcycle or you were at the desert or at the beach or something like that, even though you weren't going in the water with it, you weren't going to damage your camera. 
by taking it out. So we sold, I mean, I, I my guess is probably 90% of those cameras were sold, never went into the water. I mean, they were just basically splash-proof cameras. Probably not. To the beach. I take my A1 into the water, into the beach, and into the pool, and it is a hell of a lot of fun, the the Canon. It, it, it's, there's a bit of a debate on whether they are supposed to be waterproof or splash-proof, but I'm actually, I'm actually taking my underwater, and it works fine. Well, I think the A1 is actually, it is, it is a weather, waterproof. I mean, that one, so is the Nikon uh, uh, Action Touch. I mean, it's, it's actually sealed enough that uh, I think it's good down to 12 feet or something like that. So I mean, you could take a snorkeling and not, not have a problem with it. But are we sort of falling into our next episode a little bit of holiday cameras? Because that's exactly where we're getting. <laughs> we'll just think of something else. <laughs> so what? What? Well, so Mike, what have you been shooting with today? Uh, I I have two cameras loaded right now: the Rolly thirty five rangefinder with this monster TT Artisan fifty millimeter f 95 I wow, guess it's okay. the Chinese the Chinese version of the Canon Dream Lens. And uh, I'll tell you, this lens is terrible on this camera because if you guys can see it, it like completely blocks <laughs> the rangefinder. So it's effectively a scale focused camera with this monster on it. It, 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 it'll look impressive in a review for it, but uh, I love the camera. It's one of those Cosina, the, like the Fotlander Bessas that they released in the early uh, 2000s. Johnny loves that camera. Yeah, yeah. He's a big fan of those. They're all really nice. You know, this one uses the Leica M mount. It's the from I haven't done a ton of research on it, but my understanding is because Raleigh and, and Fotlander were the same company at that time. So they, they both had that same deal with Cusina to produce these cameras, but it works very, very similar to the, to the Bessa Cusinas. And then the other one is a camera, which I actually wanted to ask Paul about, because I'm pretty sure you said you hated it, but it's the Konica Hexar autofocus, the, the, their premium point and shoot. Uh-huh. Is that the camera? Am I remembering correctly? You said you weren't a fan of that? Oh, no, I love that camera. No, I, lo- I, I had one of those. I had one of the first ones that came out of the U.S. Okay. It is, that's a terrific camera. So is there a camera similar to that that you don't like that I'm remembering incorrectly? Yeah, but I can't remember. I, 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 I do remember what you're, what you're referring to, but I can't remember what it was. Because, I mean... Oh, the TI, the 35 TI. The TI. The, the, that's the one I really hate. Okay. But I'll tell you, initial impressions of the Konica, really, really nice. It's truly a point and shoot. I mean, you you don't have any real control over focus. You don't have any idea whether you're focusing on the object. It does have automatic parallax correction with the frame lines, which is nice. It's got over under exposure. It's got full manual mode, though, which is really nice. And, uh, you know, I, I love the ergonomics of it. I mean, so far, you know, I've only been playing with it for a couple of days, but initial impressions on that. I kind of feel like that's going to be a camera I'll come back to uh, in the future. But for a premium point and shoot, we've been pretty critical on some of these electronic cameras like the Contax G2, the the Nikon, the TIs. There's the 2.8 and the 3.5 TIs. There was a, a fat Fuji had a, the class K-L-A-S-S-E. Um, prices on them are through the roof. But once they break, you're done. Uh, the X-Pan. The, the Konica has its own failure points as well because... I came, I came really close to buying one about two years ago, but then I just kept on reading about the, I don't remember if it was the LCD, but there are a few components on that camera that when they go, they're just dead. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, I completely agree. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend somebody spend the asking prices on these because like you pointed out, once they're dead, they're dead. And if you find someone who can maybe fix them, you know, good luck. Uh, but 
as a working camera, it, quite nice. I, I definitely like it. And, you know, it's kind of a shame that that's going to be of all of all the collectible cameras out there from tin types, you know, the earliest 18th or 19th century cameras all the way up to modern digital cameras, the premium point and shoots that era is going to be the first segment of cameras that's going to be completely off the map you know, not usable, no, you know, give it another 10, 20 years. And, and that whole segment of cameras, just no one will be shooting them anymore. But for a while, they still work. Uh, they, they were definitely neat. So I've been enjoying that and the, the Raleigh. Check out Mike Check to see if yours has silent mode. It does. I read, I, I read that they had it in the black ones. Uh-huh. And then they, there was some lawsuit that where they had to disable it in the firmware. There's a way on the ones that are disabled to re-enable it again. I, I read about that, but the black there's a hack you can do to make it. Uh... Yeah, it is. You you can hear the film advance. the The motor for advancing the film does make a subtle like, but you you can't hear the shutter. I mean, it is quiet. So, Mike, I still have my handspring PDA, and I can still I can still use it, but my Apple Newton is dead. Oh, geez, too bad. <laughs> And, you know, so my, my, my take on those cameras, it's a bit like this. It's like, it's like, do I really expect my handspring to continue to work? Cause you got to imagine that the electronics in this aren't that different than the, the, the electronics in that, that Hexanon. Well, and it's not just the, it's not just the rangefinder cameras either. I mean, look at Minolta X700s that are, that are all failing. The capacitors. Yeah. Well, I've got a story of my failing cameras. Oh yeah. Oh, let's hear it. Well, what do you, what happened to you? Theo? Okay. So let me, boys and girls, let me tell you a story here. <laughs> I started off with a Leica R3, which which felt like it worked perfectly, but I noticed that the bottom of the frames were actually um, not, was the bottom of the frame, or well, part of the frame was not actually being exposed. So I took it to Jess, our reliable repair person, and she came back to me and said, no, the, the shutter's cracked. Now you can either get a, a parts camera or there's not much else we can do. So I thought, okay, well then I'll, What's the best R camera to get? Paul suggested the R4. So I went off and got the R4. So in it comes from Japan, stick the lens on, and you know, I've got a nice 50 millimeter Summicron, really happy with it, love shooting with it, but I noticed the, the metering was off and it wouldn't meter open aperture. They're supposed to, now I, I do have a three cam lens, so it's supposed to meter with the open aperture. So I contact the seller, send it back. I then buy another R4. It, it, it arrives, I you know, put it in there, and it, it works perfectly, except that it shows the wrong shutter speed on the actual, you know, in the actual display. Now, that could be just an alignment of the wheel because it is an analog wheel, but speaking to Jess, she said, you don't know what else has been bent in transport or what else has happened to it, so I wouldn't risk it, so I sent it back. In the meantime, my lovely wife, Noel says, stop messing around with these R4s. You're, you keep buying them and keep sending them back. So I solved that problem, and I now have an R8 on the way, thinking, you know, two filed R4s equals an R8. So hopefully fourth, fourth time lucky on the R series <laughs> and go with the most modern one. But to the point that we're making, electronic cameras, I mean, it's not just the electronics that fail. You know, the mechanical side of things can actually fail, but when they're combined with an electronic camera, you don't know whether you want to keep or persist with them or not. Because yeah, once something starts failing, the electronics usually come pretty close soon after too. So Theo, is is that a Vitessa on your counter? 
over your shoulder? It is. D does it work? I have been using it. It this it it currently this has been fully re um reserviced by Jess. So it's like a brand new camera. Look at it. I mean, it's it looks brand new. And and that and that Ultron lens is that as good as uh, that Summicron that you had on the? Uh... It is fantastic. It is fantastic. Then I don't understand why you're messing with these uh, these Nikon SLRs when you have a like new Vitessa with this beautiful Ultron lens. No, I sh I shoot them in parallel. I I, I alternate through cameras <laughs> all the time. But this is a beautiful camera. I I just you know. Apart from the wow factor, I mean, they just look gorgeous. Um, this one, actually, you have a clip-on meter. Which meter is on there? Uh, I have the Kex Two meter, which is yeah, a really, really nice little meter here. I've got, um, I've got some film that you sent me, Mike, in there at the moment. The twenty-two thirty-eight. The Kodak, yeah. I use the meter. Interesting enough, this meter actually works because when Jess was servicing it, she said the capacitor was, I think, it's one point three five volts or something like that. Um, she replaced it, but because you can't get those capacitors anymore, she had to actually put a, like a one volt and a 0.2 volt or, or some whatever the voltages are, and she had to add them up to to actually be the right voltage to actually get there. And she's within half a volt of where it should be. So so that selenium meter is working, and it's actually not too far off. Well, well I got to tell you, I think that camera is. Just like the epitome of cool 1950s design. Mm. And and I love the combat plunger. Mine is a kind of a beater, but it works. It, apparently mine was from the uh, the desk of the guy who was the original uh, Voigtlander importer from the, from New York City in the 1950s. And it's got this like uh, all this like fancy factory embossing on it from you know, when it was like a gift to him from Voigtlander. And it was well used and it continues to work. The meter is spot on. That camera gets the looks. You know, when you pop that thing open, you know, people want to talk to you about that camera. Uh, and that lens is is unparalleled. It's a beautiful lens. Yeah, this Ultron lens is fantastic. But uh, everybody concentrates on that plunger. But have a look at the top plate here. That design is it's just gorgeous. I mean, that, that wheel, that focus wheel, the, the meter, all of it. It's just absolutely gorgeous camera. I very much like the focus wheel on that camera where you operate it with your left thumb. Right, then the prominent, which is the knob on the complete other side. No, this is the right side. So, sorry, I, I must have just said it wrong. But right, you, it's your right thumb. So it's the it's the same thumb that would normally be resting in that spot of the camera anyway. You just go back and forth. But the prominent, which was from about that same era by Fotlander, focus is the left side of the camera. And it's on top. It, it, looks, it looks like the rewind knob, but it's actually the focus wheel. And Anthony, I know you like the prominent. Uh, the, the or you like the Vito three, right? Well, you know, now that I have the prominent, the Vito three, and the Bessa two, they all work like that. Yeah, and and I'm not saying that you can't get used to it. I have one right here, but if I had to pick between the two quirky 1950s Fotlander rangefinders, ten out of ten times I'm taking that Vitessa. That's not to say the prominent isn't also nice. But if I had to pick only one, the Vitessa would be the camera for me. The only nitpick about the Vitessa, and I've bitched about it in nearly every review that has this feature, but it's the LVS coupling. It's very similar to the Kodak Retinas. It's a tiny little lever on the bottom of the lens of the shutter that couples the shutter speed and apertures together for light value readings. And it's it's extra inconvenient on the Vitessa 
because of those barn doors where it's located, it's near one of the hinges. And I mean, you, you're literally just kind of like fishing your finger up in there to pull back on it. If you want to choose a different F-stop or shutter speed without also changing the other, but beyond that, it, great camera. Interesting enough. I actually hate it in the retinet, but I, for some reason, I'll live with it. Yeah, I don't know why. And you're right. It's, it's actually more inconvenient, but it's it's really weird how the mind works uh, in that sense. But in terms of the prominent, I've got I've got a prominent here, which is also serviced by Jess. And uh, uh, it's also got the ultra lens. And I do know what you mean, because I do automatically start reaching with my right fingers to, to focus. And that's obviously the, the forward wind. So, but again, gorgeous camera to, to use. A lot of fun. Well, what you need is a Besseth 2 and a Vito <laughs> 3 and all of them had the controls in the exact same place. And you just realize <laughs> I'm picking this up. It's going to be on the left-hand side. Uh, Theo, one last tip that Kodak 2238 film I sent you, you know, to expose it at 25, but that film is, is higher contrast than like Panatomic is, but it also has no grain. It is like the most creamy looking negatives. So I know most people, my, my myself included, my instinct when you're shooting a slower film is to go outside and definitely shoot it outside. But I, I'm glad to see that you put a meter on there. Take at least a few interior shots with like normal house lighting. I do my mirror selfies a lot of times in my reviews. And something about that film with the way that it renders contrast with absolutely no grain getting indoor light shots, which are harder to, to meter correctly, but you have the, the kecks on there, um, you'll be able to handle it, especially with that faster lens. You're going to get results out of those interior shots on that camera with the meter and that film that you, or you basically can't reproduce with pretty much any other film. So I'm not saying shoot the whole roll that way, but definitely okay. fi find a couple shots like that. Go to a bar, you know, Take a picture of your dog or something sitting on the couch or something. Okay. Okay. Not, not that I let the dog on the couch, but that's another matter. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know if you had a dog. I do have a dog. But I've been, I've been actually shooting some of the older cameras lately too. I, the Flex has been getting a bit of a workout. The Superb, the, the Super Conta C. I'm actually loving some of the results I'm getting out of that at the moment. That, it's that, such it, a wonderful camera. It is. It is. It's. It's. It is limited in terms of street photography, just purely because of the slow shutter speed. But, but yeah, if you you're taking pictures of something that's not moving too fast, it is superb. I I, I really love using that camera. But um, I've also been trying. Uh, what Paul suggested to me a while ago was the. I've got a 35 uh, PC Nikon lens. I've been using it to do uh, panoramics lately. And it, 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 the, the results I'm getting out of that is absolutely stunning too. Albeit it's on digital on the D800. And I, I didn't realize, Paul, when you actually suggested that, that they were actually designed to do that even in the manual for even in the film days to actually, when you print them, you actually print the panoramics by overlapping the frames. That lens, because of the design, it covered a, a far greater frame than 24 by 36. And it's one of the, there's a, a European camera called a Sights round shot that uh, is actually uh, 120 film. That lens will actually almost cover a two and a quarter inch frame. So, I mean, they, that's one of the lenses they, they recommend for the Sights round shot. Okay. 
Okay. So re- real quick, we spent only a few seconds talking about that lens on the panoramic show. And Theo, you've shared some wonderful samples on the group. And I'll admit, I briefly looked for, <laughs> uh, you know, one one of my own because Paul had let me borrow one too. And I only, unfortunately only shot it once. But can you explain the process of like how you're getting panoramics digitally with that? Sure, I'm I'm sti- I'm sticking it on my D800. So you've got a 36 megapixel camera. Now what I do is I put it onto the camera and I frame up all the way to the left. So I I put the shift to to be horizontal rather than vertical, and I move it all the way to the left. Give uh, put it in around the f11 aperture because uh, with this lens you actually set your aperture. It's not connected to the camera. But what it does allow you to do is you can set where the aperture is going to be the minimum aperture that you can actually use. So that way you can open it up and you can easily flick it back for your metering and it will stop in that position for you. And I put it all the way to the left. I'll take the first shot. I'll then wind the little knob and it brings it back into the center. Take a second shot and then I'll flip the lens over to the other side and then wind the little knob out all the way so that the the actual shift goes to the right. So you end up with three shots without moving your tripod, without moving your camera, which which are overlapping each other to some extent. You then go into Lightroom and you tell Lightroom to combine those in a pano merge and it will merge them perfectly. Now I took some pictures of boats and I thought, okay, the boats move, this is not gonna work. It, it actually handled that and it looks fantastic. It, it really is. And you end up, due to the high megapixel of the camera, you end up with a really, really detailed photo. And a really, really big file. And you could crop that further. Yes. Well, you could, because because the uh, on the D800, like you said, the megapixels are so high, the, the raw merged image isn't super wide, but you could crop it very easily and get the equivalent of, right? I mean, c- couldn't you get the qu- almost like a six by 17-ish similar in- by cropping it? Well, you wouldn't have the wide frame. You wouldn't have the field. True. So that that's the difference. You have no distortion. The way I do it is very similar to what Theo does, but I, I shoot actually my first frame. First thing I do is shoot a, a blank frame. I put my hand in front of the, the lens and take a picture. That way I know that the next three frames are the ones I'm going to try to work with. That's a good tip. Yeah, because otherwise you'll you'll go crazy trying to figure out which one goes where. I learned the hard way. <laughs> yeah. I take the first frame centered, then I crank it all the way to the right, take a shot, and then I rotate the whole lens. So you're just rotating it, and what was on the right is now on the left. Oh. So then you take your third shot. So then you have three frames that are... That are uh, uh, across the frame and nice. that, those are the ones you merge so you, you don't really have to you don't really have to be cranking it you only really have to crank it once and that's to get it from the center to the right because then you just rotate the entire barrel and uh, that puts it on the other side that's a great idea that really is a great idea and and then you take another blank frame <laughs> so, so you know those are the three that you're working with Mike, I, I have a gift for you. Okay. I'm sending you your own 35 to 8 PC lens. Really? Oh. Yeah. Because you because you sent me one on a dead FE. <laughs> Did I? Yes. Oh. <laughs> oh man. The lens is perfect, but the camera was dead. And I have I already have one in the eBay store. So I and I definitely don't need two of them. So I'm gonna send you I'm sending you back one of those lenses. Oh, too funny. Well, my birthday's coming up soon, so you could just say it's my birthday gift. There you go. I'll put a ribbon on it. So hey Paul, speak speaking of the eBay store, 
Yeah. Anything new in the eBay store? No, not much. <laughs> <laughs> well, so real quick, real quick, before you get into that, you know, the very last episode, we've been on a break for a month. Uh, I my the open to the show is, hey, Paul, your, your store is not working. And you said you were going on vacation. So you're back from vacation. Uh, I have a couple questions about that soon. But I, you know, I've had you as a favorite seller on eBay for even before the show existed. And I always for some reason, eBay sends out the uh, notifications of things added to your favorite stores at like three in the morning. So every morning I wake up and I get to see, ooh, what is Paul selling today? All right, so so go ahead. Uh, I I uh, I finally have started listing stuff because while I was gone, I had the store was closed and uh, and I've been so busy trying to get boxes unpacked and, and uh, one thing and another and and then to cap all that off, three hundred and fifty boxes of cameras and lenses. Saturday, I drove over to Pennsylvania and bought a Leica collection that uh, was like fourteen cameras and about forty lenses and and uh, boxes and boxes of lens hoods and accessories and stuff. But I found some, I got some really cool stuff. Go ahead, Mike. I, I want to let, I want to let that sink in just real quick. Cause you said it so quickly for people listening, 340 boxes. These are bankers boxes full of cameras and stuff, lenses. Some of them had accessories, but there, there's definitely more than one thing per box with so 340 boxes. How, how much physical space for people who can't picture that does that occupy? It's more than a 10 by 15 foot storage unit. Right. So 10 by 15. That's like a small garage, kind of. So it's more than that. So try to picture in your head what 340 boxes of cameras looks like. And he's barely, barely had enough time to even absorb what's in them. And he goes to Pennsylvania to buy 14 Leicas, 40 lenses, and a huge number of accessories that each each piece is valuable, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean it is, and and it's weird. I mean, the, one of the things I got was this lens, which you know, it, it looks normal. It's a Zeiss Yena uh, uh, fifty millimeter one point five sonar, but it's different because it's inset. It's 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 sunk in a long way. Most of the time, they're just flash. They're flush like a, a normal lens. So this one isn't. So it's got like it's an integrated hood almost. Yeah. Yeah. So I started to research it. It's it's like a thread mount. And uh, what I discovered is that it's actually a 1932 Zeiss Jena lens that was made for the Aeroflex 2 movie camera in Germany. And it had the, so it originally had the Aeroflex mount on it. Well, Don Goldberg, I think, I'm 99% sure because Don did all the work for this guy that uh, whose estate it came from, converted it to like a thread mount. Oh, wow. And he put a helical on this whole brass piece at the end here is a helical. Okay. So it's, I mean, it focuses perfectly. I went out and shot with it today. And when you hit one, five, six, it's got great contrast and sharp as a tack. Yeah. 1.5, it's a little funky. But, you know, there were some weird lenses in this mess. A lot of it's just high dollar junk. I mean, I don't want to say junk because it's, but, you know, like a lenses that are $7,000 lenses. But there was some cool stuff like this is a 19 millimeter 3.5 Canon lens that uh, was, of course, in in like a thread mount, 19 millimeter 3.5. Wow. The guy that owned it had Goldberg convert it to M. Wow. So rather than just put an adapter on it to convert it to M, he actually had it had it converted with a new mount shimmed down to be the exact focus to infinity. Because that's an SLR lens, right? No, this is for the Canon rangefinder. Oh, it was. OK, I'm sorry if you said that. Canon rangefinder lens. So it was like a thread mount. Now it's like a 
ML. They do that with the Dream Lens too, that exact same modification. Yes. Yeah. And I think they do it because sometimes those lenses are so unusual. They don't, unless they're shimmed correctly, they don't focus to infinity. Right. Well, and the the reason to convert, another reason to convert the Dream Lens is it has a proprietary bayonet that no other lens has. So at least with that 19 millimeter, the original version was a screw mount that you could use on a ton of different cameras. But the Dream Lens natively only mounts to the Canon 7 and that is all. So to, to convert that to M actually expands its its use. Yeah, it's a lot more useful, and, and I think most of them have been converted at this point. Yeah. But those are those are the, out of all the stuff I got. I mean, there's black paint like M4. Okay, uh, that's pretty rare and uh, pretty valuable with a 1.4 Sumalox lens on it. But everything else is like M3s and M2s, and and uh, you know just Sumalox 35s and 50s, and m multiple lenses of each one of them. But uh, none of it's really fun like the stuff that in the 340 boxes yeah that's fun stuff you you had commented on the strange zeiss lens and this was one i asked you about and it took me a while to figure out but i had found a contacts or I, at least i should say i thought it was a contacts it's an 8.5 centimeter zeiss sonar f2 and i mean from the front of it it looks like a contacts lens and i i saw a quick glance at it and i'm like oh okay rangefinder lens but then when I looked at it, for one, it sticks out way further than any contacts lens would, but it's also missing the, the clamp because a contacts rangefinder 8.5 would grip the outer bayonet of the contacts mount. And I looked at it, I'm like, all right, this is not for the contacts. I did not recognize it. I remember showing it to you and you're like, I have no idea. It came off an Ernamon, didn't it? No. At first I thought it was a disassembled lens because it kind of looks like something's missing from the back. But it turns out it's for the Contaflex. So it's it's the telephoto lens for the Contaflex. And I had never seen oh, right. yeah. this lens before. I mean, I, I was aware this had different focal lengths, but to actually see one in person and realize, oh, that's what that's for. It's very, very ungainly, impractical to use. Uh, I don't know if, who's the guy on eBay that does the rare adapters. Ramir. Ramir. Yeah. I mean, if, if there's anybody who maybe makes a digital adapter to that, maybe, but I don't even know if it'd be possible with that lens because the back part sticks out so far. It would almost certainly. Slightly uncommon. Yeah. It, it would, it, it, maybe you could adapt it to like medium format or something, but I don't know that you'd be able to adapt that to any modern digital mirrorless or anything like that because of its shape. To, to, to get a sense of what 340 boxes of cameras looks like, and, you know, you'd mentioned the Leica collection. At least you knew it was Leica stuff, right? There's like at least a theme. But when, when you go through these other boxes, you're just as likely to find a cheap Digicam or a Kodak Vest Pocket and then some really bizarro, you know, Contaflex lens in the exact same box. Well, and, and the, the two guys that packed the boxes up <laughs> didn't do me any favors either because one of the things I found, and you know, a lot of this is detective work, because what I found was, I, I yesterday I found a, uh, a, a an original Roliflex, an old, uh, one of the early, early Roliflex. The, right, the 117 cameras. Yeah, serial number 189. Okay, so it was, it was uh, I mean, it was two more, three more digits and 189. So, but it had uh, a, uh, a Wetzlar auction tag on it with a lot number. So I went back to the Wetzlar auction website, back to the old catalogs, and found out that the camera had actually been bought in 2018. And there were two of them. They were a matched pair 
with, with consecutive serial numbers. So somewhere in one of those boxes, I have number 188 or 190 to go with my 190, 189. I just got to find it. You should also have a matched pair of contraxes too. I do. Did you find those? You found those? I did. Yeah, that's... I didn't know the serial number on those. Are they consecutive? Yeah, they are consecutive. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's why we were sure to include them together because okay. that's the rare example of if you separate them, they, they're, they're not worth as much. You know, normally people like to take bodies and take the lenses off, separate them. You can usually get more money for But when you have a matched pair, collectors, the, the big time collectors especially when it's a desirable camera like a Roloflex or a Contorax. To get two with sequential serial numbers, people get really excited about that kind of stuff. Well, the Contorexes uh, both had 85 millimeter lenses. Yeah. And one of them, one of them was, uh, had the, the typical horrible element separation. Yeah. And the other one was perfect, but it was the, the bodies are the key, not the lens. They're the Contorex Supers. So they're the later versions. Right. You, have, you haven't sold one, right? I sold both of them, actually. Oh, you did? Yeah, to the same person. Okay, good. All right. At least it went to the, hopefully they noticed that they were sequential serial numbers. I'm sure he didn't, but I'll tell him. Okay. Because, <laughs> I mean, it would be a shame for them to make it all these years together. And then finally, we're the, we're the idiots who separate them. <laughs> but Paul made a joke about the two. You know, we talked about this a little bit last episode. I had flown out to, to Southern California and Rudy and I had gone through this huge collection and you know, Paul had 340 boxes. We had 650. And that's just the, the cardboard banker's boxes. There was another at least 100 plastic totes of stuff. And then there'd be Pelican briefs. And then there were just random things that just didn't fit in boxes. There was that medical camera we sent you, Paul, that was, uh, it took like 50 feet of bubble wrap just to wrap it in a way where it wouldn't bounce around in a box. And, um, you know... This is like first world problems, you know, talk to me six months ago and say, hey, would you like to go through 650 boxes of cameras? And who wouldn't say, hell yeah. But uh, it, it's, it's, it's mentally abusive. <laughs> I don't know another way to describe it. No, it is. I, I understand. I mean, I, tomorrow I got to go. Yeah. I, I'm still trying to sort stuff out because I've got a camera show coming up right. on the 9th. And uh, I want to get some student cameras out. And some of those twin lens reflexes mm -hmm. are just great for students. Yeah, I found a bunch of no value, just basic like Panasonic Lumixes, uh, Nikon cool shots, 8, 10, 12 megapixel run on AA batteries, you know, digital cameras. That, But they work perfectly. And my wife had an event at her work. She works with children. And she's like, you know, it'd be kind of cool to bring some some cameras for the kids to like, not kids, like, you know, preteen teenagers and such. So um, I found eight or nine of them. I got some SD cards, charged the batteries up, loaded them up, make sure they worked. And I gave them to her and uh, she was able to donate them to these kids to hope, you know, maybe inspire them to be interested in photography somehow, you know, and these were cameras that, you know, maybe we could have sold for 10, 20 bucks on EB. Who knows? Maybe they are worth more than that. I don't know digicams these days, but th these are cameras that really shouldn't have a ton of value. We were able to get them in the hands of, you know, kids who maybe otherwise had never, you know, their only impression of a camera is a smartphone, you know, to get them actually something real. That's a far greater value than, than you gotten out of them. That's a wonderful thing. Yeah. And, and Theo's got some of these adapters, you know, where Anthony's gotten stuff. 
I'm I'm I think I've become the adapter king of Australia now because of the adapter <laughs> you sent me. Uh, but I'm actually attaching things like the Pentacon Six and the yeah the Mamiya Press lenses onto onto you know Micro Four Thirds camera, which is just just insane. But the the, the results are just amazing. Actually, I, I will ask one thing about that collection. Is that the one where what's the count of Voigtlander Brilliant? that you've actually come across how many voigtlander brilliance do we have or brillants do we have there was at least 30 i think i have about 30 <laughs> yeah i i wound up with a couple too but by by far there was there was almost 80 or maybe we actually did hit 80 kodak vest pockets rudy actually just went through them the other day and he found seven or eight with rare zeiss lenses he found a bunch with french lenses birth yachts i'm sure i, I didn't pronounce that right uh, Angenue lenses. You know, you think of the vest pocket Kodak as being, you know, the rudimentary early folder basic, you know, meniscus lenses like rectilinear. Some of them that would be like an upgraded lens. But there are some really interesting variations of that camera. One, there was one of them, Paul. Didn't it take have a uh, a sheet film back? Was that or a sliding back of some kind? Yes. The vest pocket. Yeah. Yes, there was a vest pocket with a with a sheet back. And it wasn't a Franken camera that someone had modified. Like that's, it was made that way. So there are, uh, a, there's somewhere out there, there's a subset of camera collectors that collect vest pockets. And there's some interesting examples in there, but the brilliance, we found a bunch of those too. And and somewhere there's one of the brilliance is going to have a Heliar. So you need to not just yeah. dismiss them out of hand because they did do, that's true. For, for one year, they produced a a version with the, uh, with the Heliar. Well, they were gorgeous little camera. Yeah. I have one of the original all steel ones that I got pretty nice results from, but there's also focusing brilliance, which that's probably the type that has the Heliar. They don't all have it though. There, there was one that had a Bakelite body with a little hidden door on the side that held the filters. And you know, they're, they're nice. They're nice little cameras. I feel one of the things I, one of the things I found was a, uh, a roll of flex with a Polaroid back duct tape to it. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. Thanks for sending that. <laughs> yep. Well, I found a a Pentax six seven with a modified Polaroid back too. So there were a lot of weird things. I I found it's 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 branded contacts. So it's a it's a like nineteen seventies contacts. So I guess that'd be Kurosawa era or no Yashiki era. It uses Polaroid or Fuji peel apart instant film. It has a reflex finder. And the contacts CY mount. So you could attach to it, like from the contacts 167, the contacts 139, the RTS, you know, those lenses. It you, you attach a 35 millimeter lens to a contacts, the CY mount. It has a reflex viewfinder. So the mirror flips up and down, but it uses like FP100C or the 3000 film, but it only exposes. A 24 by 36 image, effectively wasting the rest of the film. I assume it's used for testing. I can't, I mean, maybe one of you could come up with a reason why somebody would want that. Yeah, you, you basically use a, a sheet of instant film only to get a 24 by 36 millimeter instant image smack dab in the center and the rest of it's black. Well, and I think the last time maybe we talked about the speed magnes that you guys sent me. Yeah. And then, then Rudy found a third... Mm -hmm. I, I have now I have three of them. And I mean, it's that was just the those at least made a little bit of sense because it was a full frame. Well, it had an enlarging lens it in it. Do, 
It made a three. Yeah, it did a three by four. Right. This did not. But the ones that NPC made that Forsher modified, they just were a 24 by 36 image. So, I mean, even for proofing, you couldn't really see anything. It's so small. And the, and the resolution of instant film, especially at 24 by 36, isn't that high. So, you know, to, to sit there with a loop or something and try and figure out fine detail on an instant print is is subpar compared to what you could get from an actual negative or a slide or something. But it's cool. And it's strange. You had mentioned you had mentioned a little earlier, Paul, getting those two those two cameras that had the what was it the Flint's auction? This the sticker on it? Yes. Yeah, they were no, they were they were Wetzlar auction. The Wetzlar. So they they had Wetzlar auction, yeah. There was they had consecutive the, that was yeah, the Rollies with a consecutive serial number and also the the lights Tokyo store stuff. Do you remember the focus slides? There were like four of them and some lens hoods. Yeah. Okay. Well, it turns out those were bought two years ago at the Wetzlar auction. And uh, they were like a store accessory, like a store Tokyo accessories. After the World War II, Leica couldn't produce enough accessories to ship into Japan. So they licensed this company in Japan to make accessories for the cameras. They didn't license them to make cameras or lenses, just accessories. So they were able to make uh, lens hoods, uh, what they called a focus slide, which was a, a, a device for for uh, copying slides or negatives, and some tabletop tripod heads. And the most valuable thing they made was actually a, a like of it, a, a thumb wind for uh, for the Barnett cameras. Uh, and they're almost impossible to find and almost impossible to, to uh, be able to buy because they're so expensive. But I, I did get uh, some of the others. And actually, I'm, I think I'm going to wind up selling it back to Joe Geyer uh, in Austria. He's, uh, he's the one that sold it initially. So he'd like to have it back. Jumping topics, though, you did the Americana Festival. That went over pretty good? Yeah, yeah we had a good time. Nobody got sick. Did you get to meet any, any Camerosity uh, people down there? Yes, I, I met Patrick Raps. Patrick Raps, yeah. Yeah, Patrick lives about 15 or 20 minutes from the hotel. So he came over to the hotel uh, one afternoon. We spent a couple hours just, uh, what a great, great guy and uh, extremely knowledgeable about vintage stuff. Yeah. And, he, and he's a shooter, which is really fun too. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was terrific to meet him. And then those exact two episodes that he was on, Ray Nason was on too, and uh, he was traveling through the area headed to Chicago and he stopped by my house. So I got a chance to meet him in person and uh, check out a little bit of the collection. He could only stay, he only stayed for about an hour, 15 minutes or so. So we didn't get to go through a lot of stuff, but it was awesome to meet him. Similar guy, you know, he's, he's a little, he's a lot like you, Paul, you know, he's a shooter, very knowledgeable. He's been in the industry for many, many years. So he's got a lot of, uh, you know, historical information, anecdotes and such in his head. You could sit down for hours and just listen to this guy talk. And he's just got so many cool stories. Yeah. He's going to come to Cincinnati where I, I have four tables at the show and I can only handle three. So he's going to set up and uh, buy and sell at the, at my fourth table. What, uh, what day, what day is that show? Uh, September 9th, some Saturday, September 9th. That's in Cincinnati? In, West, in Westchester, uh, the Hilton Garden Inn in Westchester, Ohio. It's just north of Cincinnati. Gotcha. Man, all I get, all I get are hurricanes. I don't get any visitors. <laughs> so Paul and I got to meet two Camerosity listeners. Theo, you haven't met anybody, but didn't you accidentally buy something from a previous Camerosity guest? 
That's correct. I I recently just on a whim saw a uh, Canon FTB, which is a black one, which looked quite nice, marked up as all working. Didn't recognize the seller at all, but you know, it had a good rating. So I um so yeah, I picked it up and I thought it was quite good. And and for, for people that haven't listened before, I share the account with uh, my wife. So technically she's buying all the, the cameras that I buy off eBay. And so he wouldn't have recognized the name either. And he sent an email with the instructions. And down the bottom, he, he sort of says, you know, kind regards, Peter. And by the way, I also sell a book on Canon range, uh, Canon lenses, rangefinder lenses. And I thought, oh, hang on. I think I know who this is. And it was Peter Kitcherman's Peter Kitcherman, who was actually selling this Canon FTB. And I happened to buy it off him. And yeah, it just goes to prove that everybody in Australia knows everybody else because we're, we're not that populated. But yes, that was a, a little bit of a, a surprise. Yeah, Peter was on episode 18. Uh, we we dived, we dove deep into Canon rangefinders of all kinds. He's definitely more knowledgeable about the lenses, but uh, he, he talked down his own knowledge of the cameras themselves, but he was just being very modest. Uh, he, he definitely knows a lot about the Canon system. And clearly he has an interest in the SLRs if you were buying an FTB from him. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, he seems to have a few for sale at the moment. So maybe he's he's gearing up for another book, maybe. Could be, maybe. And then uh, Anthony, you haven't met anybody, I don't think, recently. You were, you were we were talking in the, the private chat just yesterday, I think it was, about the... Uh, Arrow Liberator. The, yeah, the Liberator. John Minix. Yeah. John Minix, sorry. He, li- he just lives... Uh... He lives up in High Springs, which is where I used to to work when I was in the cave diving industry. And I was actually, uh, I'll see him when I'm like out taking photos out at the springs. And he'll also, he lives there and he just takes breaks to go and visit the state parks where the springs are. And so we'll, we'll run into each other out there. So Paul and I met, Paul and I met, you know, previous guests. Theo bought something from a previous guest. Maybe... You 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 talk to a future guest. Uh, it would. Be- I'm I'm trying to get John to join up. He he lives out in a very rural part of the county where uh, they don't exactly have good internet connectivity. Uh, but you know, maybe I can talk him into like maybe meeting up at a uh, the new brew pub that's up in High Springs, and we could just do a remote from there. Well, and one of these days we should try this. Zoom allows you to just call like an 800 number and join a call too. So maybe we could we could do that as a test for some people who've, who've expressed an interest in coming on, but either don't have the, the good enough internet or they lack, you know, what they perceive to be their own technical skills to, to get connected to Zoom. I mean, even though Zoom does make it very easy, you know, it, it does, you know, require a little bit of PC knowledge to get in. So um, that could be an option to get him in because I'm sure that guy's got some pretty interesting stories too. Yeah. Anybody that's interested, just Google Aero Liberator. He, uh, he takes the Aero Ektar lenses and adapts them and mounts them on uh, these beautiful restorations of the Reflex Graflex. And so they, I mean, they're absolutely like works of art, uh, you know, all the new woodwork, beautiful lacquering. And uh, the cameras are just, you know, they're, they're stunning. And uh, like there's the, the one guy that uh, uses his Aero Liberator to take photos of congressional meetings in Washington, D.C. So you'll see like the press gag gaggle and there'll be like everybody's with their DSLRs and the one guy in the middle of the crowd with the uh, the Aero Liberator looking up 
you know, getting the, the dramatic shot, looking up at the podium of the, of, of whoever's giving the speech. <laughs> they have beautiful cameras. I had a bit of a look and Anthony, I'm not sure if I should hate you or not because <laughs> they are absolutely gorgeous cameras. Although, you know, maybe that could be a way to cure yourself of like a SLR gas. You'll be looking at liberator gas instead. <laughs> well, I'm kind of hoping the R8 will do that by just working. Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> so we never really did an intro. <laughs> uh, with the guys and I thought it would be fun coming off of our break to just do a real quick candid. We're calling it Camerosity Unplugged show just with us four we we did not post a show announcement for this no one knew we were recording and we thought it would be a good idea to just kind of capture us uh getting reacquainted with each other you know just getting caught up on, on things we've been working on you know paul had the americana festival but but bookending that has been up to his ears beyond his ears and in, in boxes and boxes of cameras i'm on the tail end of that but I still have a lot to go through. Theo, you changed jobs. So, I mean, your life has been completely turned upside down, right? Yep. Things are going okay, though? Oh, yeah, very much so. It's very busy, but I am actually getting opportunities to shoot around the city now because I'm back in the central part. So I'm quite enjoying that, actually taking a camera with me and having a bit of fun when, when I do have breaks. And, you know, it, changing jobs uh, wasn't enough of a challenge. You've also been in the process of buying a, a new home too, right? It's something that's been kind of going on. That, that's 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 correct. So yeah. kind of had a lot of things up in the air, but it, yeah. it's starting to sort of work its way to being a bit more calmer right at the right time, just as spring is coming through and, and summer. Well, if if I don't know if, if you want this life advice, your life is complicated enough. I don't recommend having any more children. So, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. My, my youngest son just turned 18 last okay. week. So I, then. I, I, a couple of weeks ago. So it's... Uh, uh, I'm good to go. I've got adult children now and that's it. No more pets either. Nice. And then Anthony, we started out, we were talking about the uh, the hurricane, which is bearing down on you imminently, but you've had a string of, uh, of COVID related challenges at the cafe. Yeah. It's, it's been, it's, it's been a real challenge with staffing in our town. COVID is just ripping through the service industries again. And I'm just, I'm daily, I'm reading about restaurants that are having to either, you know, do reduced hours or reduced menus because they, they, they just can't keep staffed. And, uh, you know, it's like, it seems like every time I come out of, you know, dig myself out, I lose two or three more staff to it. And then, you know, the hurricane's not helping. Uh, but you know, beyond that, I had not been buying much, but I've been sending stuff out for repair. So I got my, my Canon IVSB back from, uh, camera works and it is just absolutely, uh, just a gem. I mean, the thing is, is, every bit as smooth and fun to shoot as the the 3f was and i got my robot royal 36 back from radu and got a mamiya uh very wide angle lens for the 645 fixed up and shooting that uh and then just before that i'd had my tower 22 overhauled by eric the the uh, pentax expert and so i'm just i feel like i'm, I'm reacquainting myself with some some very special cameras, you know they're not the flashiest cameras, uh, but each one of those has something, you know, really unique about it. And uh, I just I think this last week I had seven cameras loaded up with film at the same time. That Canon 4SB, that was the one I strong armed you into buying, wasn't it? Correct. Yeah, that's probably my favorite of the Leica style Canon rangefinders. For the in terms of the later ones, the VT Deluxe is hard to beat. I love the P also, but um, mm. 
that's a beautiful camera. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're very very nice. So that's I'm I'm excited to hear that you're getting those back out. So you know sometimes getting an old camera serviced is is better than getting just another new thing in the mail because like those you can actually use and there's just something about when you pick I'm not you know we've talked about this before I don't care as much about cosmetics you know Paul that M4 that black M4 you mentioned earlier that things shows a ton of patina but it's the good patina right that tells you that that camera was used like it you know to its designed purpose and those cameras are a joy to use but when you pick up one that's just smooth and everything works. Everything clicks like it's supposed to. Nothing sticky. That's that's my favorite part of this hobby. I'll use a camera that's stiff with a hazy viewfinder, uh, a shutter that only fires at one speed, you know, for a review just to be able to say I shot one. But it's it's not as much fun than getting something that's been, you know, professionally cleaned and, and working. Well, getting that robot royal back. Yeah. He can completely overhauled the the viewfinder rangefinder and it's easily as bright as either my uh Leica M3 was or my my Contax 3A for sure and uh that camera is I mean it's a clockwork I mean it's like holding it's like it's like holding a three pound Swiss watch yeah it's it's a it's just a it's a heavy devil but now the clockwork is is I'm getting like eh, probably 15 shots per wind uh it just purrs along and uh you know, it's it's unlike shooting any camera that I've ever touched. You know, and I own quite a few different burning robots, but this this you know the end of the line trying to compete with Leica, creating a, an incredibly refined uh, rangefinder. That Royal, you know, people bitch about them because you have to like use the canister, and this one uh, has a proprietary take up spool uh, that you have to use, but you can use a standard film cartridge with it, and it rewinds it back into the film cartridge. So you can can reload in the field. Uh, yeah. So as as long as you have the uh, NR cassette, it's as functional as any other camera, and it's just it, it's it's just it's sort of like the Vitessa, and that it's just so uniquely and weirdly different than any other camera that when you pick it up, you know that you've got something that's just really cool, special. Yeah. But you know where we're actually the nightmare for for a lot of the repairers because I mean I do that with Jess where I'll. I'll drop off five cameras and she'll finally be able to get to the end because obviously she's got other customers and etc so i'll go pick up my cameras but in the process i'll dump another five cameras on her and she'll go I'm not, I'm not go- <laughs> this, this pile is never going away so but it works but anthony i hear that you're actually helping the environment by feeding the ticks and making sure they've got enough food uh out, out in the wild oh yeah yeah that's that's my latest is that i I seem to have picked up some sort of tropical disease, whether it's mosquito or tick-borne. Uh, the University uh, Center on Infectious and Tropical Diseases is is having their way with me and drawing blood on a weekly basis because I, I something's hit me up and uh, not incapacitated, but certainly inconvenienced. And I'm, I'm just I'm really hoping it's not another bout of Lyme disease. They have not ruled that out yet. Oh wow! So between illnesses and for you your staff hurricanes job changes buying a second house taking on multiple museums worth of camera collections and trying to sell them we've been we've been pretty busy all four of us so even though we probably would have taken a break in august anyway because we did the exact same thing at that the same time last year it came almost at a perfect time for all of us to kind of you know just settle some other things and prepare for maybe fall 
who knows, or for spring for you, Theo. Uh, maybe those can be a little bit more normal coming up here. Yes. And it's season three. We're going to wind. Yeah. We're, so we're going to wind down here real quick. This was meant to be a short episode. We're officially calling this season three. I don't know that we're going to do much. I had uh, created a quick poll in the Camerosity podcast Facebook group asking uh, the listeners if there's anything they'd like to see us do differently any you know whatever you know any ideas what do you like that we do you want to keep doing and unanimously it was just keep doing what you're doing so we're gonna we're gonna do more of the same which is a good thing i think some ideas you know the guys and i kind of throw around what do we want to do for the next coming shows sometimes we don't end up doing it sometimes we move things around i think we settled on the next episode will be about travel and vacation cameras even though we, we talked a little earlier about waterproof cameras, it'll be interesting to hear what you guys all take when you go out on a trip. You know, a combination of rugged and reliable, something that's not going to break on you. Uh, but is it smart to take a $10,000 Leica M11 on an airplane to a foreign country? Probably not. So, so I think that could elicit some interesting conversations. Uh, a lot of you, the listeners, have been begging us for a large format episode. Is that something I we're going to do soon? guys i think we could do that i think we could we can we can we can say we'll we'll say four by five or We're above yeah or three by four you know something like that and and uh talk about different formats of of cameras different styles of cameras and lenses i think we could do something like that yeah so if anybody the, the whole open source concept does require input from you guys too uh, believe it or not, between us four, we don't know everything. So if anybody has any ideas for a large format show, you want to participate, please, please look out on uh, for that show announcement when that comes. I definitely feel as though we have neglected the Soviet camera industry for quite a while, even though like cameras come up here and there. We've really never done anything dedicated to that. that that's a really deep well. Uh, in terms of brands... You know, we've covered a lot of the best brands. We've talked about Mamiya, Konica, Minolta, Grayflex. Um, I really want to do a Yashica episode. I had previously interviewed from my site, Paul Sock from uh, Yashica TLR. I'm still trying to convince him to want to do the show. I, I don't have his commitment yet, but I'm hoping to find at least somebody that has ties back to Yashica to come on a show and talk about that. I think it's we're overdue for another European time zone friendly episode. You know, those, those are difficult for us because it's hard enough as it is to find a time that works for us for anyway, to do that at a time where it's the middle of the night for Theo is even harder, but uh, we have gotten some engagement from some people on those couple of shows that, that are were great. And, and I, I love hearing from our European listeners too. And, you know, our, our normal recording time is the middle of the night for them. So I, I feel like at least once a year, Doing another show like that to, to allow some other people to participate is, is a great idea as well. But Mike, we need an episode with a quiz again. Another uh, quiz, yeah. Quiz. No, we're not going to do any more quizzes. It was rigged. Yeah, Anthony always wins. They cut my mic. I would have. I, I could have been a contender. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe this year, mate. Maybe this year. <laughs> and then we got then we got Robert Shanebrook wants to come back. Well, yeah, we've we want to do a show about some film stocks. And it, it's like total fate because I want to, I think Paul, it was you who said we need to really do a film stock episode. And I, I swear to God, like four days later, Robert Shanebrook emails me out of the blue saying his book was out of print. 
making Kodak film, but it's back in print now. So he's starting to take orders because he ships everything himself. And he said, you know, if you want me to come back on the show, I'd love to do it. So I feel like that could be kind of a really cool episode to to explore more about other film stocks. It doesn't have to be Kodak. Uh, we could talk about, you know, other emotions out there. You know, Alaris just made the announcement that Kodak is committed to continuing to make film for as long as there's demand. And even though he's retired, Robert does still have a lot of insight into the industry that I think is unique to him. So it'll be awesome to have him come back more on a, on a show too. So we have, we've got so much good stuff coming up. Yeah. And of course it all goes out the window the minute somebody, one of our listeners calls in and find something they want to talk about. So yeah. all, all the, our ideas are only starting points and everything, everything progresses from there. So Some of the best topics we've had have been completely spontaneous. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, 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 the, the callers make the show. He's got to go to work. Paul's got to go to bed. So do I. Uh, Anthony probably too. So you guys have a great night. Uh, it's great to see you again. We'll try to get this episode out quick, get a show announcement out for the next episode after that. So hopefully you guys stick with us this year and uh, we're looking forward to season three of the Camerosity podcast. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Bye, everyone. So Mike, how did how did the soccer team do? So my both my kids are doing youth soccer. I'm head coach for my daughter and I'm an assistant for my son. Uh my daughter's team did very well. We won six to one. It was our first game of the season. Uh my son's team ended up playing. Now, this is youth soccer. These aren't travel teams. So it's it's that niche of children's sports where some people take things way too seriously. And uh he ended up drawing the short straw and his team played the team that takes things too seriously. So we got our butts kicked by them, but it's, it's a lot of fun. I love, I love seeing not only my own kids, but some of these other kids get so excited. I, I know that the women's world cup just ended and, you know, a lot of people, Theo, you know, Peggy Marsh, a lot of the other UK um, collectors that I talked to were really excited about it. And soccer just for whatever reason, just never reached, the mainstream in the United States, but weirdly enough, it's super popular for kids. So, so Mike, when I was in like up, up until high school, I played soccer in, in, in Florida and in Tampa Bay, we had a North, a North American soccer league team called the Tampa Bay Rowdies and the Rowdies are still around. And they, they had this sort of roughneck uh, striker named Rodney Marsh. And uh, he would have a summer camp, a summer soccer camp. And I attended a couple of times and got to take training with Pele. Oh, wow. Who was playing for the New York Cosmos. Wow. So I actually, I spent two summers uh, spending my summer afternoons uh, doing drills with Pele. Oh, my God. Uh, so I have always been a fan. You know, it's, you know, it's something that, that's never left me. But my, my other brush with fame is that uh, when I went away to university at Indiana University, I played for the university rugby team uh second row and uh overlapped with a player called mark cuban 